We're live again with Robert Grant. Hello, Adam. Robert Grant, the man. We had the best time yesterday. It was great. JC and I went back to uh, back to the hotel, and we felt like we got our, our brains punched around a little bit by Mike Tyson. <laughs> it was it's so much information. It's such cool stuff. You know, we we don't spend a lot of time with uh, with with expert mathematicians, <laughs> and so it was it was a ton. But if you guys didn't catch uh, part one. It was just an amazing conversation. We talked, what all did we talk about? We talked about Egypt. We talked about a lot of stuff. Yeah. Talked about Egypt. Talked about some math. Yeah. Uh, we talked. Uh, alchemy. About alchemy. About, uh, gra- about gratitude. Gratitude. The importance gratitude plays in helping overcome fear. Beautiful minds are free from fear. Mm-hmm. You know, I watched this cool TED Talk one time. You probably <laughs> never heard of it. Thank you. People need to check out uh, Robert's TED Talk on beautiful minds are free from fear. Mm-hmm. That's what it's called, right? Yeah, just, just uh, you can just Google Robert Grant Ted, and you'll be able to find it. Yeah, that's a, such a great video. My girlfriend was like, "Oh my god, this is profound." Have you watched this video yet? And I was like, "Oh no, I'll have to go watch it." <laughs> it's but been uh, it's been interesting watching it kind of grow and get more views. It's uh, about one point two five million now, I think. Really views? Yeah, more people need to hear that. It's yeah, a, it's for a good sure. message. We mm-hmm. walk around scared shitless most of the time. I think I think that's one of the things that paralyzes mankind more than anything else. Yeah is uh, we just get paralyzed and we don't, we're not our best when we're afraid. No, we're in that reactive, scared, anxious state. It's the reptilian brain. It is. Right, the fight or flight mode. And you're just not capable of having higher order thoughts um, until you can transcend fear. Yeah, it's, it's totally true because you're... And, and scarcity, which is related to it. Yeah. Right, fear of loss, fearing being left out. Uh, those scarcity feelings tend to really paralyze us mentally yeah I, I used to hear you know tony robbins and brandon burchard and a lot of people talk about fear about mm-hmm. how people are paralyzed by fear and i for for years i would hear these talks and i'm going i don't i don't i can't relate with this i don't walk around afraid all the time i, I can't relate with this i can't get anything from this and then i realized finally that you know i'm kind of slow sometimes as you well know um, <laughs> please I, I realized <laughs> that uh anxiety is fear yeah, you know, it's 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 fear of what's to just come. Just worry, even. Yeah. Just, you know, any, anytime you feel that anxious feeling, um, you know, you're not really in your best, most solid, strong place, and it's a natural tendency. I mean, it's it's put into us. I think it's designed into us for for really good reason. We we need to be able to have a survival instinct, right? We need to have self preservation as a survival instinct, and that's part of this whole process and learning how to transcend that is what it means to become a human being rather than just a human doing. Yeah, that's it. It takes mindfulness. It does. It does take mindfulness. You know, someone once said to me that danger is real, but fear is a choice. Danger is real. Fear is a choice. Okay. I like that. I like that. Uh, Someone said that anxiety is just conspiracy theories. Uh, You tell yourself about yourself. Or something like that, you know, <laughs> yeah. just like making up reasons why you should be afraid or why you should be scared. How many, how many times have you done that? I, you know, you just, oh, well, this could happen and that could happen and this is probably going to happen. And you're like, how often does that shit really happen? Like, how often does, does the worst case really come along? <laughs> you know, uh, it's really interesting you say that. The more you think about it, the more often it comes along. That's so true. It's uh, the, the, you know, it's funny. It reminds me of a, a, an old Ronald Reagan uh, sort of joke that he used to tell a lot, which is the story of two boys at Christmas. Two little boys. One, uh, they're both, you know, twin boys, and, and they're like five years old. And the parents are concerned about them because one of them is super optimistic, like over-the-top optimist, 
And the other one is a super pessimist. So they called the psychiatrist and said, we can't figure this out. These are twin boys. Why is one pessimistic? Why is the other one optimistic? He said, well, I want to do a test on Christmas morning. So the, the parents allowed the psychiatrist to come to the house and set up the house and everything on Christmas morning. And uh, the first thing is the little, the little boy that's the pessimist is taken by the hand of the psychiatrist. He takes him to a room and he opens the door and the door is full of all the very best presents. Like everything that you could ever want as a little boy, right? At that time, you got the G.I. Joe with the special grip and the Eagle Vision and you got the Erector set and all the best Lego sets and everything you could ever, ever want. The Rock'em Sock'em thing. This is, you know, back in the 70s, probably 80s. And, and so he says, look, all of this is yours for Christmas. And the little boy starts bursting into tears. And he says, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And he says, well, because I'm going to lose my Legos and one of my friends is going to take you know, my erector set pieces, and then uh, uh, it could break my G.I. Joe. Yeah. And and so the, the psychiatrist says, wow, this kid's a real pessimist. And he takes the other little boy, the optimist, takes him to a room, he opens the door, and it's full of horse shit. Yeah. And the little boy says, oh, boy, I'm so happy. He says, why are you so happy? And he says, well, with all this manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> and and I, I really think that Everything that happens to us in life really comes down to what we choose. You know, yesterday we ended on that topic, actually. We talked about how 90% of what happens to you in life is what you perceive happened to you rather than what may have actually happened to you. Yep. And literally everything that happens to you can be something that you could see and flip very easily if you just change your perspective a little bit on it. And I know people go through suffering and difficulty, so I don't want to minimize that. But you can change your perspective on what that means for your life with a decision very quickly. Yeah, I, I, I love the saying that things turn out best for people who make the best of the way things turn out. Yeah. You know, I mean, whenever you look back on your path, especially, I mean, really, when you, no matter what condition or position you're in in life, when you look back, you can see the path that got you here. And it's, it's usually 90% of that is your own decisions. And those decisions are made from a state of mind that's either reactive or responsive. And I always talk about the difference in those two words, right? Because chemical reactions happen instantaneously without any thought or any guidance or strategy, right? You know, it's interesting because it is our natural inclination to feel shame and fear. And then that immediately turns to blame. Yeah. Right? And we talked about that in the whole Garden of Eden story, right? The famous Genesis story. It says, oh, the woman that thou gavest me and, rem- and commanded I should remain with, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I did eat. Then he turns to Eve and he says, God says to Eve, Eve, what hath thou done? And she says, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. In both cases, they both blame somebody else, right? And I think that's really profound because we all tend to, whenever we make mistakes, we do things wrong. Instead of just sort of taking it on board and recognizing that virtually all of it comes from us internally in some way, shape, or form. Um, so we pass blame on others, whatever that is. And, and that's often referred to as sort of victimhood, right? Yep. And, and, and I'm just not a believer in that. I, I, I'm not diminishing again. I don't want to diminish that people go through difficult sure. situations. But what they often fail to do is forget maybe the role that they may have played somehow, some way in contributing how they perceived and how they dealt with those difficulties, right? And if you can take a positive attitude to dealing with those difficulties, I can tell you, you will much more rapidly, and science bears this out, uh, you will much more rapidly recover from those difficult situations and you'll build a resiliency 
that you know everything that happens to you it's like oh well it may not have been perfect but geez you know, as i look back on my own life personally every major failure i ever had led to an even bigger success I, I, yeah i was going to hit on that because i know that you know you've you've had some pretty some pretty shitty times that uh you know yeah. you, you were like oh my god this is this is the end this is everything yeah. I've worked for. It's gone. Yeah, you know, I've had that feeling before. I'll Absolutely. never crawl out of this hole again. Oh, I faced you know, I faced very difficult situations and betrayal, and and I could have easily just blamed other people, and I decided instead to kind of look within and say, well, how did I get myself into this situation? And um, that helped me come out of it. And the result has been the the best. I guess the last couple of years of my life have been the best two years of my life. And I had my greatest difficulty about three years ago. And um, I'm so grateful for it now because I completely transformed who I was and how I perceived myself. And I already thought I was pretty positive. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you still get tested. And, you know, the universe tends to throw you difficulties and challenges and risks. And if you decide not to take those risks that could have benefit for you, then the next time you're presented with a risk, it's likely not to be as big a risk. Yeah. But there is a universal equation of risk and return. And that return may not always be financial. That return may not be social. That return may not be reputational. That return might just be developmental for you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at a certain point, you have to kind of just say, okay, I surrender. And I surrender to the fact that there's some higher will or higher purpose that's sort of leading and guiding me down the path of life. I, uh, I always say that life is like one great big spiral made of lots of little spirals. And all those spirals start with a thought. Fractals. Fractals. Because mm -hmm. God is a binary fractal self-replicating algorithm that makes up all things. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Something like that. Something like that. But it's all, all, all of the spirals in life, they all start with, with a thought. Mm -hmm. They all originate from a thought. And if that, if that thought's a positive thought or a negative thought, right, polarity-wise, right, if this is a, coming from a place of gratitude for my current situation in life, yeah. or, a, or, or a place of victimhood and fear or shame or guilt or anxiety or whatever that's going to start a spiral that thought's going to start a spiral and positive thoughts beget positive action right? absolutely well thoughts beget words right and words beget actions and i think finding consistency in all three of those and not listening to the negative self-talk I, I mean probably the biggest issue i hear from people you know, that I come across in my life. And now that I just turned 50, I guess I'm probably becoming a little bit more philosophical than I have in my younger years. But what I notice is that people are just so judgmental of themselves. Yeah, They beat themselves up when things don't go exactly as they'd hoped or wanted. Uh, that's okay. You know, it's, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay. Now, obviously, the best is when you can learn from those mistakes and sort of move on. But it really, you know, my feeling is that regret is just sort of like not something, it's kind of like looking, if you're driving in your car, you got a big windshield, right? You probably have a truck. I do have a truck. I figured. Yeah. So you probably have a big windshield, but how big is the rear view mirror? See how he stereotypes this because we're yeah. from Texas. <laughs> I but love, yeah. Hey, I'm from, I was born in Texas, by the way. Were you really? Yes, I was. I knew I liked you. Yeah, I was born in Wichita Falls, Texas. No shit. Mm -hmm. The booming boom town of Wichita Falls. 1969. Exactly, yeah. the, like a month and a half before the moon landing. And it's interesting because we tend to sometimes get so focused on that rearview mirror that's, you know, maybe a tenth of the size of the windshield. Yeah. That we 
don't drive in the right directions. Or if you focus too much on the obstacles and difficulties you face in life, it's kind of like skiing down a mountain and focusing on the tree. What's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to hit the tree. Yeah. Or if you focus on the pothole in the road, you're going to run into the pothole. So it's not that you don't know that those are there. It's not that you don't recognize, you're not consciously aware that there are obstacles and challenges and difficulties along your path. But not putting your attention and focus to them incessantly is why you will succeed and avoid them. The more you place attendance and credence and importance on those things, the more you are likely to run into those problems and you'll you'll experience it more and more and more. Yeah, and a lot of times I think we're we want certainty. We want to know for certain that things are going to be okay. And and we we get paralyzed by that fear. And that's one of the yeah. biggest things that I I think, you know, just from from our upbringing, whether it's, uh, you know, we, we tell our kids, like, walk on the sidewalk, you know, cross at the crosswalk, stand in line to get here, do this and do that. Don't play on the the uh, the, the, the jungle gym at school because you'll probably right. break your neck, mm-hmm. you know. And so we just, we, we, we've, we've been sort of conditioned to think that as long as we do things a certain way, everything's going to be okay and everything's going to be fine. And you get out into the real world and you have the opportunity to take risks that has, sometimes have great reward. And we're like, ah, oh, fuck that, man something bad might happen, you know? Yeah. And so we just kind of go get in, in line onto the obligation train. And we, you know, we, we have a lot of people that are stuck never doing the really fulfilling things in their life that they could do because of that fear. What if I fail? What if everybody right. laughs at me? Right. What if I look stupid doing this? You know? It sounds kind of like a, it's a little depressing to live like that all the time though to me. Yeah, society's gotten that way. And it's kind of cool whenever you see people break out of those patterns. You know, mm-hmm. you see people wake up one day and, go, and you I know see what? people break out of those patterns every single day. I think we're living in a fabulous. special time. Yeah. I do too. I think we're living in a very special time where we are becoming more and more empowered. And like I said earlier, I, I think it kind of relates back to this transition from human doing to human being. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. And that's the process of alchemy. Absolutely. Which leads us into a question I wanted to throw at you. Sure. Um, we touched on John D. I think we touched on John D. yesterday, little, didn't we? Bit. Just very mm-hmm. briefly. Mm-hmm. Uh, John D. is a somebody who's super fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And on this podcast, a lot of people who listen are into esoteric and, and occult philosophy and history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, most of the listeners then or viewers would uh, probably know who John D. is mm-hmm. to some extent. What is John D. to you? Who was he? Mm-hmm. In a nutshell. Uh, What's the importance of his work? And uh, what do you think of the man? I think my first experience with John Dee was actually in a movie. Um, And the movie was called Elizabeth, the Golden Years. It was about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more than like 12 or 13 years ago. Never heard of it. I'll have to check that out. Uh, Kate Blanchett plays the role of of the queen, Queen Elizabeth I. She's good. So there's this great story in the film about how uh, Queen Elizabeth, you know, she was the virgin queen. And she uh, was probably one of the best-known queens in, in all the monarchs and all the history of England, right? And uh, there was a very famous battle that was ensuing that was going to be happening on uh, uh, the North Sea versus the Spaniards. And right before the Spaniards were going to be landing towards the White Cliffs of Dover, she went to go speak to her magician and astrologer and mathematician who was this fellow by the name of John Dee. And he was very famous in the day as a mathematician. 
so he was both a mathematician and a, a magician, I guess, and alchemist, and that's what people would have called alchemist in the day. Those things Even kinda, though, those, those, those sort of came as a package deal back then. It's kind of a package deal, and that's what Isaac Newton was. Yeah. That's what Johannes Kepler was. That's what Rene Descartes and, and many, many other of the, the great philosophers that we look at today as being those that discovered major mathematical advances, uh, major philosophical advances, and uh, and and also they were they were usually polyglots. They spoke several languages, and usually they were polymaths. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they almost almost always were polymaths. And so so basically, uh, she went to John D. and she said, "What's going to happen?" And John D. in the film says to her, uh, and, he, and and I don't remember exactly the words, but I'll paraphrase. He said something like, "You know that that uh, the tempest is going to fall. There'll be a storm." And you will fly and soar high above the tempest, and and I remember that impacting me in the film because uh, it was it was a very powerful scene, and I was like, why would the queen go to this magician guy? And uh, and sure enough, there was a huge storm, and in the middle of the storm, the Spaniards were trying to set their anchor, and right before they're going to attack England, the storm literally wipes them out. Wow. And and the English were smart because they had sort of anticipated this. And so uh, one of the uh, the leaders, uh, I think his name was uh, Raleigh, um, and he basically set the ships on fire and then drove them right into the where the Spanish ships were trying to anchor. So not only did they get uh, you know destroyed by the storm itself, but then also they all caught on fire and burned, destroyed the entire Spanish armada. So England emerges out of this story like hugely triumphant. And, and a central role in that whole story was that Providence you know, played its hand in England's victory. And of course, Queen Elizabeth remaining as the monarch for many more years to come. Now, what was interesting was that that sort of led me to start wanting to learn more about who John Dee was. Sure. And, and so I started studying a little bit more about John Dee. Uh, in the last year or so, I've become very good friends with, uh, with Alan Green who is the expert on uh, the Shakespeare Code. He's written a book uh, on it. It's outstanding. It's pretty mind-blowing. What's the name of that book? Um, it, it's basically called The Bard Code, um, and it's, um, it's, it's actually to, the, on the cover of it, it says to be or not to be, right? So you'll, 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 you'll recognize it that way, but it is an outstanding book. And if you're interested in learning more about the Shakespeare Code, you can find many... Uh, YouTube videos uh, on his channel, uh, Alan Green, which is A-L-A-N Green. And uh, he also has done outstanding work on the Great Pyramid, and he's an expert on mathematical constants. And that's why uh, I became good friends with him. I had reached out to him right before I went to the Great Pyramid on my, um, on my second visit. And he had asked me to do some measurements for him inside the Great Pyramid, which were related to that golden number uh, as well as the uh, the golden angle, and and as I mentioned that you know you could take the sarcophagus and stack it on its side six times and it goes five times uh, from sort of left to right. And one hundred and thirty seven point one hundred thirty seven point five times in total, right? And what's interesting if you take the the space, I didn't mention this yesterday. If you take the space out of the measurement inside the sarcophagus, so take that just space out from a volume perspective, the volume then becomes exactly one hundred and thirty seven times which is exactly, it's a 137.036, which is exactly the alpha constant. So the alpha constant is 
the constant that's used in, in physics as well as in chemistry that defines when an electron will either absorb light and jump to a higher electron shell, so it will go from one shell to an outer shell, or it will absorb, uh, that, that's absorption of light, or it will reflect light. And so alpha becomes the mirror between light and darkness. And it's a mathematical uh, sort of threshold energy that's dimensionless. And that dimensionless nature of it has been the, the subject of great mystery in the physics community. Richard Feynman referred to it as the veritable hand. It's as if the hand of God wrote that number 137, and we don't know how he pushed his pencil. Richard Feynman, the very famous physicist. Of course. Many physicists, Wolfgang Pauli, even Einstein, have been intrigued by that number 137. Uh, it's the 33rd prime number, in fact. So the fact that the Great Pyramid is based proportionally, right, from a volumetric perspective, also on that number, is pretty mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing. Like so much other madness that's going on mathematically <laughs> with the Great Pyramid. 80. So so John D though, to go back to your comment question about John D. John D um, was one of the great mathematicians of the time, you know, following the Renaissance. And he when, uh, when was he alive? He was alive in the late um, so late sixteenth century. So it'd be like the late fifteen hundreds. And he, uh, it, up through the early, you know, 1600s, so the early 17th century. And, um, and if you, it was, it was the exact same time, in fact, that William Shakespeare was supposed to have been alive, right? So, um, you know, kind of in that 16, late 1500s, you know, 1583 to 18, 1585, in that range, up to like 1615, 1620. So, uh, so basically, we, uh, we have a lot to learn from him, and he left a lot behind. At the same time, he was also famous for having translated, uh, and and uh, for lack of a better term, he was visited in, by his claim by angels. This is what and I he wanted basically to get into. translated the Enochian tables. He basically wrote out the Enochian tables in the Enochian language, which is uh, where we get the, the term Enochian magic. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, he did that with a colleague of his named by, by the name of Edward Kelly. And he and Edward Kelly worked together in Prague for a number of years. I think it was eight years in total. And, um, and then, you know, I'm certainly not an expert on these matters, but I'm tangentially aware of them because I work closely with Alan on other mathematical constants, et cetera. And he's very, very interested in this work. Uh, he's found in Shakespeare's writings, in fact, uh, a lot of ciphers and he's been able to decrypt a lot of the hidden meanings within Shakespeare's sonnets and plays. And it, it's fascinating. Uh, it's really worth watching if you have the time to go onto, uh, onto the YouTube channel for Alan Green and, and really check that out. So check out his channel on YouTube. Yep. Is he has, does he have stuff on there about the Enochian magic? Uh, I don't know that he's got something on there about Enochian magic. I think uh, you'll find more by Aleister Crowley probably on Enochian magic. But what I think you will find is that in his book, uh, there's a lot that is to be seen about Rosicrucians and Freemasonry uh, and Royal Arch Freemasonry and and uh, the mystery that has been surrounding William Shakespeare his entire uh, you know life as well as after his life and to today. Do you think Shakespeare was Francis Bacon? No. Who do you I think do he not. was? Was I he think real? He was, I, think, I think Shakespeare is a pen name. Uh, I, I certainly am a believer in 
what uh, what Alan Green uh, believes as well, which is that it was a fellow by the name of Edward Devere. Edward Devere, who's Edward that? Edward Devere. He was the seventeenth Earl of Oxford. Okay. And he was quite a bit younger than the Queen, but many uh, believe that he was the actual lover, one of the lovers of Queen Elizabeth, and that uh, in fact his uh, he had a son with the Queen that was very well hidden. Uh, and the son's name was Henry Rosalie. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. He was kept in the Tower of London for some time. Really? Mm-hmm. And hidden him from up the there world. Like, uh, like Rapunzel? Hidden for the world. So the Jacobeans came in after Elizabeth, because Elizabeth, when she died, she it was very important for her to remain as a virgin queen uh, because you know there was a major strife going on from the Church of England, which had broken off from the, the, the Catholic you know, Vatican, um, during How'd her she father's reign. How that when she was pregnant? You know, that would be, well, you know, they had those weird dresses back then, right? <laughs> she had to take off the, the fucking, what's it called? The, the really tight the thing? The corset, yeah. yeah. yeah I guess. Maybe she just hid for a little while. I don't know. But, um, but many believe, I mean, there, there's, this is a subject of a major controversy because some people believe that, uh, you know, the man, William Shakespeare, was really the man from Stratford and uh, and there's a whole society of people called Stratfordians that are of that mindset, um, and and both Alan and myself are uh, and we found the encryptions Alan has uh, that basically point directly to it being Edward de Vere himself. It's mm. basically written in the works of Shakespeare uh, pretty unequivocally. So just real real quick, because I was on that that webinar yesterday with with Alan and with you and all all the other guys, mm-hmm. um, just a crazy meeting of the minds. What mm-hmm. a what an interesting experience that was, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it was mind blowing. Alan breaking down just just how I mean how how much how much detail Alan had to get into uh, from a mind space standpoint to 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 find this shit. Like it was like uh, looking at page numbers that were out of order or different fonts that were used on different you know on page titles or or whatever it was. The different ways that punctuation was used obviously incorrectly on intentionally mm-hmm. and then turning all that into an algorithmic sort of understanding of the work mm-hmm. and, and, it, and it was just unreal taking little anomalies in the writing itself across the total body of work of Shakespeare and turning it into an algorithm oh yeah no he, he's even taken the sonnets to a whole nother level and constructed them uh, into a pyramid because actually on the cover of the sonnets you'll find that all the geometry that would be necessary to make all regular polygons, as well as all of the uh, the mathematical constants that are embedded in the Great Pyramid that are known today, and probably many others, as well as Thales' theorem, are all in the simple cover of the sonnets themselves with simply two lines and four dots. Two lines and four dots. It's remarkable. And it actually points to, as you'll see this in his video, it actually points to a geolocation of longitude and latitude that happens to be the Great Pyramid, the Rose Tau, and that's the original name for the Giza Plateau. Wow, mind blown. That's crazy. It's remarkable stuff. And so John D was friends with Edward Devere. Yes, John D was uh, friends with Edward Devere, um, and and actually also with Sir Francis Bacon. They were all Rosicrucians together. So these were, uh, at the time, you know, the Freemasons had sort of changed their names several times. You know, you went from Templars Templar, to Freemason, right. 
right? To because they, you know, they'd get to a point in time where they had a a friendly king or friendly monarch, and then you know they'd kind of have to like uh, disband themselves once they found, uh, you know, that they were in the presence of an unfriendly monarch, and as was the case with Philip in France, you know, in thirteen. 13- O four to 1314, where, where, you know, there was Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th yeah. right? A lot of Templars were killed during that time period. So they, they just sort of resurfaced as Rosicrucians, right? And is, Rosicrucian is, that, is Rose Tau, right? Crux, Crux, Crucian is cross, a Rose cross. The Red Cross. So the Red Cross, right, which we obviously use as symbology for the Red Cross today, but the, the Rose Tau is the name, the original name of the Giza Plateau. Really? Yep. In what language? Um, well, Tau is Greek. Okay. Okay. In Hebrew, Tau would be Tav, right? But Rose is a is a word that that transcends many languages. In fact, uh, it's a it's a word that's been near and dear to my heart. It's been one of my company logo things for a long time, and um, I I don't know what it was always about the red rose that resonated with me. But it and you know, I'm not. A, I'm not a Rosicrucian or anything like that, but it was just something that resonated about it. Maybe it was the Fibonacci spiral that was embedded within the rose. I get that. How? What do you know about the Freemasons? Um, How I, old are they? Well, that's a good question. I mean, if you if you believe what you know the Freemasons would believe, there's really no beginning to them, right? That they were at least as old as the builders of Solomon's temple, but you could probably go back further and say, no, maybe the builders of the pyramid. And, um, you know, the, these, the, the, the Freemasonry is a more of a thought philosophy and an approach to life and maybe ascension than, uh, than what we think of it as a uh, sort of a, a cult or a secret society. Right. And, and, I, and I think, you know, it's the tendency of human beings to fear what we don't understand sure. or know. And so I think that they get kind of a bad rap I think so. from time to time uh, because it's like, well, there must be something bad about them. But you know what? <laughs> At the same time, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, right? Something like, you know, eight of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were like ben Franklin. Freemasons. Right, Ben Franklin. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think we have a tendency to, to be afraid of things we don't understand, especially when they're sort of secretive. Absolutely. A lot of people think in these sort of black and white terms, and it's like, well, if there's something secret about it, then it's obviously bad. But it's like, well, maybe there are some ideas there that you don't want just every uninitiated person having access to, right? Maybe maybe you should have to sort of do your homework. Manly P. Hall talked about unearned wisdom, mm-hmm. right? And so maybe as a, as a Freemason, they, you know, it's, it's a school. You know, there, there's, a, there's a whole school of philosophies and ideologies and ideas that, um, and math right mm-hmm. that, that goes into like you said it's a it's a way to approach life it's an understanding um that you can use to, to orient your sort of your moral compass and your decisions and stuff there is something powerful i will say this you know the symbols of freemasonry that are most most fundamental would be sort of the straight edge of the compass mm-hmm. right and in the center of that is this letter g which is sort of mysterious because everyone thinks it oh, was that is that geometer or is that God? Or what is the grand G? architect of the grand universe. architect of the universe, et cetera, et cetera? And what I can tell you is this: that there is something very powerful that comes out of earned wisdom. Earned wisdom is through experience. Earned wisdom is through autodidaction. Unearned wisdom 
is like learning these principles and concepts of what it means to be ascended or of higher thought because you learned it in a university. It's kind of like studying philosophy today in university. What you're really studying is more rhetoric than philosophy. You're right. studying what philosophers said and regurgitating what philosophers said and, and maybe teaching some of the concepts that they learned through experience and through earning their stripes, right? Yep. The, the philosophy of old is philosophia, right? The lover of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And you can't be a lover of wisdom unless you love wisdom. And so what happens is, is it's an autodidaction path where you go on your own. It's not like there's a, like, oh, I'm gonna go online, I'm gonna go learn to be a philosopher, right? You have to go and seek it. And once you're on the path of seeking it, then all of a sudden you'll find all this stuff open up to you. Yep. You'll find it. It will definitely find you. But it's it's not a path that is something you can simply just kind of say, okay, I'm gonna you know download the Rosetta Stone audio tapes and like figure out how to be a philosopher. Yeah, that's it. How much has the work of Manly P. Hall impacted you? I've, I've, uh, you know, again, one of the great blessings about living in our day and age is that we've got so easy access to, you know, records from even the forties and fifties and sixties. And, um, I would say he's had a big impact, you know, but not only him, people like Alan Watts has also Mm -hmm. had a big impact on, on me as I kind of sought out to learn who Alan Waltz was. Uh, another person that has had a big impact on me is Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. Carl Jung was a philosopher, a polymath. He was also the, the psychologist for Einstein's family. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's fascinating. There's a great television show that you can find on uh, Apple TV um, called Genius about Einstein's life. It's a 10-part series. It's fantastic. Jeffrey Rush plays the lead part of Einstein. I highly, highly recommend it. And in that, you'll learn that uh, what a profound impact Carl Jung, the psychologist, who had been the understudy and apprentice of, uh, of Sigmund Freud and then broke off because he didn't believe everything was about sex. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. So, so uh, he had such a huge impact on Einstein's thinking and even to the point where Einstein kind of came up with this concept and notion of time being the fourth dimension. That was a, a thought and concept that had been put, put forward by his friend and alchemist, um, Carl Jung. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that Jung was, was really big into alchemy and esoteric philosophy. No doubt about it. But Manly P. Hall, boy, I don't think you have anyone who was a stronger, more ardent student of the esoteric and the the mystical than Manly P. Hall himself. There's a great museum of Manly P. Hall uh, that you can visit here in California. It's uh, it's outstanding. Where is that? Um, it's uh, there's there's one in Southern California here. It's a, it's an L.A. area. So before you go, you can uh, you can go visit it. I've got to do that. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've got not to do that. I've not been to it, but I've had people say, "Hey, we got to go together," and I've been planning to try to figure out a time to go and visit. I would like to visit it, but. Um, it's a, it's a fascinating story, his life. And he uh, really goes into such a high degree of detail. And even his talks that you could find online just on YouTube are truly fascinating. Now, some of them are so old that the audio quality is not very good, but it's still worth listening to. You don't pick up every single word perfectly, and he's got a weird accent type of thing, too. I, I love it. I love his accent. Yeah. It's some old, um, I forget where he's from, but he's, he's from like New York or something like that. I Maybe think. Boston or something. Yeah, but he's, know. but it's like from the early, you know, he was born in like 18, 
90 or something mm-hmm. like that and then died when he was like 90 or something yeah so he had that really old accent but he's got tapes that, that got put onto youtube and he was doing lectures in the 50s and 60s i've actually for a long time wanted to go through but he's got so much so much of it to do but i wanted to go through and like transcribe it and then re-deliver the lecture yep just to because the audio is so bad sometimes it's yep. hard mm-hmm. for a lot of people so i think you know you could if you could redo that and sort of just reread some of his lectures yeah. with good crystal clear audio, I, I think that his work is so important to get to get out there. Outstanding work and, and on the Great Pyramid as well. And you know, you'll find amazing consistency as well with a lot of the commentary of Manly P. Hall um, and the Emerald Tablets, mm-hmm. as well as amazing consistency with uh, Edward Casey. Yeah. Uh, so when you reference the, the emerald tablets, are you referring to the Doriel emerald tablets? Yes. Those ones? Yes. Yeah. I, um, when I discovered those, it was, it was a life changing experience mm-hmm. for me just mm-hmm. to, to read those. And, you know, just to throw this out there, cause I know that it's going to get brought up. I get that a lot of people think that they're horseshit and a lot of mm-hmm. people really, you know, Doriel, there's a lot of questions about who the, the author mm-hmm. was and his real name was Claude something, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't give a shit less. If you mm-hmm. understand what channeled work is, and if you've ever had access to channeling, you read that stuff and you you know that there's truth in it. It's it's mm-hmm. uh, it's it's founded in truth. It definitely has some resonance. Uh, so does the Kybalion. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, there are many books that were purported to be by Thoth or Hermes Trace Majestus. And um, I think this is sort of the central thesis of a lot of hermetic wisdom. Hermetic wisdom, you know, it's funny because I used to work in the pacemaker industry and in the pacing field, uh, we talked about hermetically sealing pacemakers because we had to make sure that no bodily fluids could get inside a pacemaker, which would then short its battery out, right? And um, I'd never really heard much about that. I always wondered why they called it hermetic sealing. Like it never, and that this is actually an alchemical process yep. of how to seal things to be, be able to withstand, you know, the, the damage that can be inflicted on it by time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's fascinating when I started learning about, you know, what it means to be a hermeticist. Yep. Uh, again, through autodidaction. And I, and I believe that, you know, the, the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, they're all hermeticists yeah, yeah, sure. at their core. Hundred percent, yeah. Because that's that's that Hermes going back to Thoth, right? That ancient Egyptian lineage of of the staff ideas of Caduceus, exactly. Yep. And the whole process uh, that is put forward, uh, that is really, you know, this Hermetic wisdom process and alchemy of these different steps of gaining higher knowledge. And yep. these different steps of gaining higher knowledge start with the process called Negredo. Then it goes to albedo, so it goes to, from the blackening, which is really about integration of the shadow. This is the, the five birds of alchemy. Yep. The the anima or animus, which is spoken of by Carl Jung, in his works, uh, he has a great book called Aeon, which Aeon means individuation, and um, basically that uh, you know they're sort of like uh, the allegory of and an analogy of birds of alchemy, which represent the negredo, which is the crow. Uh, the next step is albedo, which is the swan. And then the next step is citronitis, which is the peacock. And uh, basically, it's like the opening of the eyes. You know how a peacock, when he puts his feathers all up, right, and sort of like stands out beautifully like they do, like a big fan, you see it looks like their feathers have eyes painted all over them, right? And then 
the next step is the pelican or rubedo, the reddening, which culminates in something in alchemy referred to as the marriage of the red king and the white queen. And the marriage of the red king and the white queen is really about you merging with your uh, sort of alter ego and starting to accept yourself and take full responsibility for the self. Is this sort of uh, the union of the shadow? The union of the shadow, the merger of the male aspects, that we all have male aspects. We all have some female aspects, too. All females have male aspects as sure. well. And, and marrying those two elements is the alchemical process that is the reference to changing base metals, which is our sullen, unworthy souls into something beautiful and golden. And it culminates in the last bird of alchemy, which is the phoenix stage. And the phoenix stage is when you've basically burned off all of your, uh, all of your ego and, and notions of separation, and you move towards a very powerful feeling of merger and oneness. The phoenix has always been a, been a, a powerful symbol of rebirth. Absolutely. You know, all the way back to like the Phoenicians, which mm -hmm. I love, you know, I, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago, I realized the whole Phoenician Phoenix, like this is the oldest civilization that shares, you know, sort of a linguistic morphological similarity to the word Phoenix. And that mm -hmm. even the Phoenicians had, um, uh, had a lot of symbolism around the Phoenix and the rebirth of it, which mm -hmm. I always thought was fascinating too, just to kind of run off on a tangent, um, about the Atlanteans potentially being the Phoenicians. You know, there was a lot mm -hmm. of a lot of sea going. Mm -hmm. um, they were a maritime civilization, and they mm -hmm. were they were they had so much phoenix symbolism in their in their culture. I always wondered about that. Like maybe there was a a lost civilization. They were a seafaring people that had you know their civilization went all the way out to the Carthaginian civilization, where so out by the Rock of Gibraltar. Mm -hmm. So they were covering literally all of the Mediterranean Mediterranean with their trade routes. So, um, you know, the only real references we have historically to the ancient world, I mean, you've got obviously like Herodotus who wrote about the Great Pyramid, um, and you're talking kind of in the, you know, the references we have are kind of in the zone of about 5th century B.C., kind of in that time frame. Which right? is really recent. Which is really recent. I mean, I mean you've got, we've got references to Pythagoras, right? We know Pythagoras spent a lot of time at the mystery schools in Egypt, um, but... The major reference we have to any concepts of Atlantis that are, you know, pre-modern references would really be the references by Solon from, in, in the writings of Plato. Yeah, right? which came from Solon. Which came from Solon, exactly. So, so basically, um, you know, there he references the great year, he references the civilization. Now, you could argue that, you know, that there's something special uh, about the Phoenicians and that the Phoenician language is a proto-language in many ways to the Greek language or maybe vice versa. We don't know exactly. Mm -hmm. we, we just don't know. We, we believe that uh, the Phoenician language predates that of the Greek language. But if there's any languages that probably have some connection, if there truly was in Atlantis, uh, many believe that it was in Santorini. So, you know, that there was a Minoan civilization that would have been connected in some way to the Phoenicians um, and that there was a big volcano and earthquake that happened in that time frame. So, you know, that's how the, the, uh, the Atlantans would have, Atlanteans would have been destroyed and their civilization lost. But then there's many that believe it was well past the Rock of Gibraltar, not in the Mediterranean at all. 
and uh, and that maybe even the Azores Islands, right, and the Canary Islands might be the last remnants of what there would have been for an Atlantis. And I don't know the answer to those questions because I'm not I'm not into that. But what I think it is safe to say is that those that follow the perspectives and thoughts of Manly P. Hall um, and also many Freemasons, um, as well as many Rosicrucians and many Knights Templar, are of the mindset that we are not, uh, that the first civilization on this planet was not the Sumerians. Sumerians, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I tend to lean toward the Graham Hancock idea that there was there was a world civilization there was a, there was just 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 we have today mm-hmm. there was a global civilization the egyptians were hanging out in peru the peruvians were hanging out in new zealand the new zealanders were hanging out in india you know and and as a as a linguist yourself mm-hmm. of course i don't speak seven or eight or ten languages mm-hmm. but i i know how to look at similarities between different scripts mm-hmm. right so you can look at the rongo rongo script of mm-hmm. of, of easter island of rapa nui compare that to uh, to the Indus Valley script that's only recently in the last... So I'll, I'll, I'll give you one that's kind of a little bit of a mind blower. So one of the things that um, that Freemasonry does do in, in the last several degrees of Freemasonry, starting from 30th degree, 30th, 31st, 32nd, 33rd degree, and 33rd degree is supposed to be the highest degree. Sure. Um, and it also is significant because when I discovered the Alpha Omega on the rim of the sarcophagus, it happened to be exactly peak of the A, the apex of the A, which I mentioned yesterday was, you know, the A, the alpha and omega next to each other were 5.6 inches wide. And it was exactly 31.4 inches from the side of the sarcophagus itself. And 5.6 is the square root of 31.4. Right. So that's kind of interesting because, geez, either whoever left these markings were just graffiti artists. But if they were, then they were brilliant mathematicians who also understood the dimensions of the Great Pyramid and all those proportional references. And every major math constant that's built into the Great Pyramid, uh, of, of the top 12 math constants, this is what I have confirmed, are all embedded in those two letters, very simply. So, you know, this 33rd degree, when you go through this process, and the peak of the, of the omega, by the way, is at the 30th inch away from the right side or right far side of the... Uh, facing north if you if you are uh, basically looking at the sarcophagus the sarcophagus is 89.62 inches long and what's interesting about that is that as a freemason they give you letters right at each step so the 30th degree you'd start with m Mm -hmm. the 31st degree you get o 32nd degree you get a 33rd degree, you get I, Moai. Wow, which of course now, is is what the uh, the Easter Island statues are called. Right. That is unbelievable. And actually, reading it the other way around is I-A-O-M. And it's pronounced E-A-O-M. It's like a chant. So the reason why they, they gave it to you that way in Freemasonry is so that you wouldn't know how to do it until because they actually flip it around yep right when it goes the other way so i find it interesting that the moai right is <laughs> the exact beard opposite of the i am yeah right and the i om yeah that that we use in in a lot of near eastern philosophy and in as a as a mechanism and means for achieving higher thought 
through meditation. That is crazy. I didn't know that about Freemasonry, but that they would build the uh, the moai into the last the last four letters that they give the last four degrees of Freemasons. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. I spent a lot of time studying Easter Island and uh, in all these different languages. Have you something? I think as a mathematician and a linguist, you you need to know about this if you don't already. But the Aymara language. Have you ever heard of the Aymara language? I have heard of it. It's uh, it's from the Aymara people on the south uh, shores of Lake Titicaca in um, Peru and Bolivia. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's near the Tiwanaku civilization yes. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, the the Aymara language is is incredible because it's uh, they're using it now as they're understanding it. Linguists are using it to to decode all other languages. It seems to be a proto language. Interesting. Um, but it's it is so perfectly designed that it's like binary computer code. They're they're using it to write computer programs now because it's so perfectly designed. It's extremely advanced. It's it's not you know, most languages, as you know, were have been sort of um they evolve, they morph, they they they're they're massaged into being and they grow organically over time. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of tell how old a, la- a language mm-hmm. is and where it comes from by right. tracing mm-hmm. how it morphs and how it evolves. It's called etymology. Mm-hmm. That's the etymology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Aymara language ha- is is completely and perfectly designed like a binary computer code. It's perfect. And it's blowing computer programmers' minds. This is a fairly recent discovery, but it's something that's blown my mind because I've studied Aymara you know, for a while. And when you compare Aymara to, um, to the Mayan... Um, Language. What's the Mayan language? JC, I expect you to know this. It's Mayan? No, it's, it's there's a name for it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, Quechua. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Q-U-E-C-H-A. Uh, there's there's a ton of similarities there. People always, a lot of people thought that Quechua might have been the original proto-language on planet Earth, you know, in, in sort of these weird esoteric circles anyway. Um, but then the Aymara language... You know, when you look at that, it seems like Quechua might be like one, one, one layer of abstraction, or, or um, you know, one etymological step away from uh, from Aymara. But that's something that I I want you to look into that before we talk again. Sounds like Aymara is also an agglutinative language, which basically means it's constantly. Um, there are some languages that have lots of consonants. Yep. Right. There are some languages that have lots of vowels, mm-hmm. like Greek. Um, so you have words like aeon. Right. Yeah, Animaeus. Right, exactly. Like Fifteen vowels right. in an eight-letter word. And you word. could turn the words around in Greek, and they have meaning as the mirror reflection really? of the word. Yeah, that's pretty. So cool. uh, that's fascinating because, like, you take a word like aeon, which one of its meanings is "I am," or it mm-hmm. means God. Also, um, and aeons is also what the Gnostics used as the word to refer to the gods, right? Yep. The monad, and 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 the other way around of aeon is no way which is from noesis, which means to think. Mm. So I think, therefore I am. It's just an anagram of the same word. That's incredible. Right? So when, but there are certain languages like Japanese that would be agglutinative, which basically have like, um, it's a it's consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel, like imara, right? right? Would be, E is consonant. Uh, e is in this case would be a, a vowel. Ma, the M sound is consonant, and then vowel ra, consonant vowel. So I'm wondering if it's an agglutinative language. I don't know enough about Imara to be 
to to really provide any context on it. But now that you brought it up, I'll definitely look more into it. I want you to look into it because it's very it's, it's super mathematical. Mm-hmm. It's uh, like I said, they're they're using it now to write computer code, and they're like, this is the most elegant and beautiful language we've ever seen. Well, and in Hebrew is more mathematical than I think most people know or realize. Which too. I think is fascinating. Talk about that. Well, first of all, uh, one of the discoveries that I had made, which I was just like looking at one day, I was looking at the the name of um, the Hebrew name of God, which is Yahweh from from the Bible, and I and I looked at it and I was like, that's interesting. It kind of looks like Hebrew is written backwards, but I noticed that the symbol for you know the letters starts with a, a small seven shape uh, letter, which is called Yod, and then Hey which is their H sound, then Vav, which is another larger seven, right, looking shape, and then He. So Yod, He, Vav, He is, is Yahweh. Now, you don't, in Hebrew, you don't put um, vowels in. Right. Right. So the vowels are just sort of like implied. So you could think of the entire language, the way it's written is like a consonant language. But it's implied because they know that this combination of letters can only allow. It's sort of like we write PLS for please, mm-hmm. right? We don't have the E A, right? Ancient Egyptian was that way too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like so thoth, there was a yeah. Right, thoth, right? Thoth would be exactly the same. There's no way. O. There's no O. So when I looked at this, I was like, well, geez, wouldn't that be interested? If I'd be interested to see if that's actually a math equation because this Yodhe Vavhe looks like seven pi. Right, and then seven pi. So I thought, geez, this would be kind of nuts if I found this equation comes out to be something like significant. Something significant, yeah. And sure enough, uh, what I found was that it, it it reads as, and it could go either direction, right? Um, pi to the seventh power over pi times seven, or pi times seven over pi to the seventh power. Now, what that turns out to be, and, and pi to the seventh power ends up being exactly the perimeter of the Great Pyramid. It's just over 3,020 feet, okay? 755 feet, depending on how you measure with the sockle, without the sockle. But in that zone, times four is 3,020 to 3,025 if you're measuring with the sockle. So let, let, let me just clarify here. So if you were to take the Hebrew name for God, which is Yahweh, yes. written in Hebrew, mm-hmm. and you were to transform those those alphabetic characters into the numbers that they resemble, yeah, it becomes a mathematical equation, the solution the of which... H in the, the hey or the H sound in Hebrew is pi. Mm-hmm. The math constant, 3.14. And when, so when you look at that Hebrew character, mm-hmm. which you and I did the other night, mm-hmm. I think at dinner, you look at that character, and it's an H, but mm-hmm. it looks just like the mathematical character for pi. Absolutely. Yep. Looks just like it. And you've got you know a 7 next to it. One of them's large. One of them's small. One of them looks like seventh power. So I ran the calculation, and guess what it turns out to be? The pyramid. 137. Uh, 137. There's our number again. 137. It's my favorite number now. So t- pi times 7 equals 22. That, you divide it into pi to the 7th power is 3,020. 3,020 divided by 22 equals 137. And if I take it the other way around, right? Remember, Hebrew is read backwards. Right. Then you would just simply say 3,020 divided by 22, and then you're at 137 again. So the 137, <laughs> I thought, wow, that's an amazing coincidence. By the way... That 137 is called alpha, 
as a math constant. Okay, that's alpha. That's alpha. That's the 33rd prime number. So, so the, the Hebrew name of God is the alpha constant. Robert Grant. That's incredible. So it's interesting. Maybe an amazing coincidence. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. It just seems unlikely. It seems very unlikely. That's crazy. You and your numbers, man. Trips <laughs> me out. It's amazing though. It really is. How much do you do you look into like the Vedas and uh and, and Hindu cosmology and that stuff? I've always been fascinated with it. I think that those guys I heard Carl Sagan say a long time ago, back when I was still like a pretty hardcore atheist and I was big into um, all, all these different science, science guys. And uh, Carl Sagan was talking about the Hindu cosmology mm-hmm. and he was he was amazed by it. He was it's, so impressed. He said, man, these guys really understood between their, their great cycles and the yugas and stuff. You know, if you look at it from a modern scientific cosmological standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's amazing to me because, you know, think about it. Mankind believed that the earth was flat all the way up through, you know. A lot of people still do, Robert Grant. <laughs> I know. It's one of those things I just can't. I, yeah. I can't. Okay, even if we believe that the Earth is a simulation and we're in a holograph, and that holograph is projected from two dimensions, the Earth is still projected in three dimensions. I, I, <laughs> I just can't. I can't. It's one thing I just cannot, because I get people all the time, they're like, wait, your math and stuff, is, is this proving that the Earth is flat? I'm like, no, no, it's not. No. Yeah. I'm not of that mindset. But I, I really needed you to say that out loud. I appreciate thank that you. very much because, <laughs> it, you know, I still get harassed on the Instagram. And I have, and lots, I, of, I have lots of friends that, like, that I find out later that they're, like, flat earthers. And I have nothing against, nothing against them. They're good people. But, man, oh, man. And I even, you might even get me to agree that maybe we live in Maya. Yeah, yeah. Which is a big simulation, sure. right? Sure. And that's, that's what Hindu philosophy basically says. I, I'm I'm down for that. But yeah. this whole thing that we're like in a big parking round. lot, we're in like some parking lot of like a giant like studio. Yeah, it's like really, I, I can't. I well, just can't, I can't wrap my head around. It. It's like Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's like the Earth's not fucking flat. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. Like, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm not that. You know that charged about it. But what I will say is this: it took a real long time for the inhabitants of Earth to get to the point, right, in the times of Copernicus, right, get past kind of like Ptolemaic thinking and flat earth and, you know, there may be dragons out there, right, at the edge of the earth, to where we are now, which is we understand that the earth has an arc, right, and that that arc, by the way, it, it is pretty funny, but you you can go on to uh, Netflix now and there's like a really interesting documentary about the flat earth or beyond the curve yeah beyond the curve it's hilarious it's 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 great it's wow it's a must watch did you watch watch. it yeah i watched it it was painful it was kind of like watching borat for a while yeah yeah you know like borat when borat walks out with like the whole thing and he's like where do i put this right (laughs) the preacher and everyone's like what it's like it was kind of like watching that for me but yeah but i still i i couldn't it's like watching a train wreck i could not watch it right so but the point is that it took us a long time to figure out that the only way you could see the arc of the earth is by kind of getting up in the sky and not easy to fly if you don't know how to fly. And and so, or go climb a big mountain, right? And get up the top of a mountain, you'll see a lot farther than you would normally see, yeah. right? And you might be able to see the curvature of the earth the higher you go up. Well, the point is that what if time is the same? So in other words, we we reckon time and we call space space time, 
Yep. In fact, right? And and maybe it's just time. Maybe it's just time because it's all relative. Right. Right. So the distance that you travel is only measured in time. So therefore, is it not time itself? So that's a bigger question I have, right? And maybe there's an arc on time itself. And that maybe it, you know, the reason we couldn't tell that the earth wasn't flat was because the, 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 the distance of our gaze could not exceed the horizon, mm-hmm. right? What if the length of our lifetime doesn't exceed the horizon of the arc of time itself? I'm actually with you. I can't believe I'm sticking with you through this, but I'm there. So what I mean by this is that the Vedas, as you asked about the Vedas, talk about cyclicality of time. Yeah, lots right? of cycles. The great year, right, is part of the Vedas. There's there's 25,920-year cycles. There's, and, and you know, the Mayan Bactunes, right, uh, the all the way through to the 432,000-year cycles, that we're in a cyclical world that kind of lives and relives its same issues over and over and over again. And these timescales just happen at fractals that are larger than one lifetime. Yep. And in, in the Vedas, they believe, well, it doesn't matter because you're reincarnated anyway, and you're just living the same things over and over again, and it's all just a giant fractal of the smaller fractals that we're experiencing today. Yep. Right. And it's all about breath. Right. I talked yesterday about there being twenty five thousand nine hundred and twenty breaths, right, for for each day of a human being on average. Right. Talked yesterday also about that twenty five thousand nine twenty times twenty five thousand nine twenty. You square that number and it ends up being light speed in miles per hour, six hundred and seventy one million. Okay. So these these things are all about breaths, intake right? Inhalation, exhalation, we are 24 hours in a day, 12 hours of inhalation, 12 hours of exhalation. And when we think about the cyclicality of time, maybe our reckoning of time being perfectly linear may not be correct. And I just put it out there as a question. As I start to look at time and toroids mathematically, I start to wonder myself, well, gee, is it is it not possible? Is it not like philosophy or like space itself where on Earth, if I walk west, I eventually end up east. Yep. If I walk north, I eventually end up south. By the same token, I often wonder, you know, talked about this too. Is Kim Jong-un a fascist or is he a communist? It's only one step. So I see a, a circular or a spherical arrangement, even in a philosophical sense. And I could even say this about things like the difference between arrogance and humility. I know plenty of people that are so humble in their own minds, they become arrogant in their humility. Yeah, sure. So maybe, just maybe, our understanding of time is radically wrong. And and I I don't know that for certain. I'm, I'm just basically saying that it's possible that what we perceive as our very distant past might actually be our far future. I think that's incredible. It makes, you know, I... For a long time, I've been been fascinated by the idea um, of, of of torus fields. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that that we uh, we have, you know, it's just kind of like the Earth has its magnetosphere, mm-hmm. and it's a big toroidal field. You know, and uh, I guess within that, I don't understand the first fucking thing about magnetism, but I do know the way that it looks on a diagram. Mm-hmm. Right, I can I can look at that and understand the way that the different range of vibratory frequencies exist, like layers in an onion across the span of this of the the magnetosphere and i've wondered about that 
with uh, things like time? How does how does that affect time? Because we know that if you're in the stratosphere, you experience time differently than you do here down at the surface, which is why we had problems calibrating the GPS systems back in the 60s or 70s or whenever we started throwing up those satellites. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think about the idea of, of the Earth having this sort of torus field of different vibrations and that maybe there's, you know, each person, because we know the heart does the same thing, the yeah. human heart. You know, we talked about the, the principles of correspondence yesterday, something we talk about on, on this podcast a lot, as above, so below, as within, so without. And um, this kind of segues uh, or, or at least brings in the discussion about astrology I wanted to get into because I've always believed that the, the solar system itself is a giant chakra system. Mm -hmm. You know, with the sun as the crown chakra, the earth as the heart chakra, Saturn as the root chakra, or whatever. First of all, how batshit crazy does that idea sound to you? And then how does that work with, with, uh, with the different Taurus fields and stuff that could exist within that? So first of all, one of the things I noticed in my work um, is I was drawing out the solar system and I noticed that there's clearly a Roy G. Biv um, expression of the coloration of each of the planets. So it's just like a rainbow. Mm -hmm. So if you look at each of the planets, starting with Mercury going out from you know the closest to the sun, which is Mercury, it's 36 million miles from the sun. And again, uh, these all comply with both phi ratios as well as, and the Kepler's laws of motion basically show this and on planetary motion. Uh, but you know, it's basically geometries. There, this is still what we recognize today. And maybe even today we've lost some of the 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 work that Kepler had done on this because I think maybe some threw it out as being sort of hogwash and related to alchemical work, kind of like, you know, people believed about 80% of the work of Isaac Newton was also alchemical. Right. So, but Kepler um, did amazing work on the laws of motion. And, and what you'll find is that you have 36 million miles from the sun is where you find Mercury. And then the next planet out from there is 67.1 million miles from the sun. That's the same 67.1 that is 2,000 or 2.592, that precession of equinox year, 25,920 times 25,920. So that number squared is 671 million. So there's that same 671 number. And it's also a light speed reference in miles per hour, right? Mm -hmm. So then if I take the distance that Mercury is from the sun and I multiply that by 2.592, I get 93 million miles which is where Earth is. Right. Right? So and then I take 1.86 times 2.592, right? And I just put the appropriate number of zeros behind it. I end up at 483 million miles, which is where Jupiter is, right? So this is light speed times another derivative of light speed, right? Which is also 1.61 squared, right? Gives us that 2.592 number. So there is clearly an order to our solar system. And why would I presuppose then that there wouldn't be an order to the rest of the universe too? Of course right. there is. And what you also notice is the coloration goes exactly like the color spectrum. So you've got kind of a reddish color, you've got a kind of an orangish color for, for Venus. You get to Earth, if you take the water off the Earth, it kind of looks like a brownish reddish color, yeah. right? And then you get to Mars, which is, you know, we refer to as the red planet, but it's actually more like a yellowish color, right? Mm -hmm. And then you get to Jupiter. Jupiter looks kind of like a tannish, whitish color. And then you've got Saturn, which is a greenish color. And then you've got, you know, Uranus and Neptune, which are kind of like indigo and violet colors. You've got the rainbow. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. I, I totally get into that. So these are musical notes. I wanted to talk about that. And and that's exactly what Kepler believed, the, the harmony of the spheres, as did Who was that? Know, was that Isaac Pythagoras? Newton. No, oh, actually Pythagoras, that yeah, Pythagoras certainly talked about these types of concepts, but but the true harmony of the spheres is really more, you know, in the time frame of post Renaissance period, which is where you have people like Kepler and and all the way through to Newton. Mm. And so you know, both of them believed that this was simply um, the universe moving in motion according to a music, like a merry-go-round, that we couldn't hear. In other words, that light is the sound we cannot hear, and that sound is the light we cannot see. Are those, you know, when we talk about Walter Russell, particularly when you and I talk about Walter Russell, you know, the, the understanding of light and vibration. Uh, it makes me think, you know, is everything light? Is everything sound? Is light sound? Is sound light? How, how does that relationship between sound and light work in, in our understanding of it, right? Because we, we can see when light reflects off of an object and it reflects a certain color and that color has a certain, you know, hertz frequency. Um, we can see that, but we can also hear a song that has different, it's made up of different frequencies and whatever else. Right. But our consciousness at our very center is is really just receiving sound waves or, or different wavelengths of different kinds, different vibrational frequencies. But because of the different sensory organs that are picking it up, we're, we're, we call it light or we call it sound. What is, what is that about? What is the relationship between those two things? Is everything light? Is everything sound? What, what is it? So I'll tell you what I, what I believe, and I can tell you also what, um, what scientific theory is now starting to develop related to this tell me and, and I also I can also tell you how it's very consistent with that of Walter Russell uh, and several others too not not just Walter Russell but others the likes of Keeley uh, other luminaries that uh, that definitely saw this looked at the world in a different way actually I'm gonna go back to a, a very famous physicist by the name of Maxwell you probably heard of Maxwell's equations yep right and this is about 1860 well Maxwell's equations were writ written in something called quaternions Right, and this I've heard that four, word around your office, but this would be fourfold symmetry, fourfold symmetry. Now, it turns out that the twenty-four hour clock, upon which the prime number pattern was discovered, um, and the quasi primes were discovered, and the ability to predict prime numbers infinitely was discovered. Going um, back to our conversation yesterday, is really just a two-dimensional flat form of a geometry that's quite well-known, which is called the vector equilibrium, or sometimes referred to as the cube octahedron. It's a series of, of triangles and squares. And the number of edges on the series of triangles and squares of the cube octahedron is 24. So you could think about that as the third dimensional form of this 24-hour clock spiral. That creates a torus, right? The toroidal that we've been talking about that also you know, basically fits beautifully into a tube torus, which fits beautifully into a model of a torus of time, right? And it turns out that if you take 24 circles and you multiply that by 360 degrees to find the sum of all of the, the degrees of 24 circles, it turns out to be 8,640 degrees. That's the same 864 that is the diameter of the sun, 864,000 miles. It's the same 864 that is double the uh, the 432 tuning standard of Pythagoras, 
right? Oh, hold on, I just now did the math to get the digital root of eighty-six forty. Nine. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so when you when you and, and by the way, the number of the, the Egyptians used and the Sumerians used. Remember, these are the earliest civilizations on Earth. Yet they somehow were able to figure out time to such incredible precision and perfection. They had 360-day years, right? They had five days at the end of the year, which was meant for the Earth to sort of die. Sirius, right, our sister star, would go underneath the horizon and then come back up and be resurrected with the new year. And that would happen during the five days at the end of the year. Well, what's interesting about this is that the 360-day year in their cycle and 360 day would then represent one degree equals one day, right? Right. I always wondered about that because they, they did have 360 day years back then. Mm-hmm. And I never understood how that worked. Well, I mean, if you then take that 360 and you multiply it to find the number of hours in a 360 day year, it's 8,640. That's the same 8640, right? That same 8640 that's embedded in the pyramid. And actually, it's derived from a mathematical constant as a relationship to another mathematical constant. One of them, Euler, we talked about it yesterday, mm-hmm. the owl, right, the 2.718. And Euler divided by pi gives us 0.864. Okay. So that 0.864 relationship relates to light. Now, what I'm a believer is, is that, and, and many physicists now are of this mindset, that, that what we perceive as matter... So what would be the first light of the universe? Well, it would probably be hydrogen. Right? Hydrogen would emit the first light. You've got this electron going around one proton, and then we go through the entire periodic table of elements, and that periodic table of elements takes you through you know, all the elements that we know. So it goes, starts with hydrogen, then it goes to helium, right? then it goes to lithium, right? and then you go to beryllium, then boron, right? and then you're at carbon. And then carbon goes to nitrogen, nitrogen to oxygen, and then fluorine, right? And then the cycle starts over again, where now you're, you're, you're basically going to the next noble gas, right? Mm-hmm. So helium was the first noble gas, the next one's neon. And then the cycle starts again. So think of this as a wave or a sine wave, and then a cosine wave. Now, hydrogen would be from the previous sine wave, right? And the cosine would actually be something, right? potentially even before hydrogen. And, and now scientists are, and physicists are sort of positing this notion of something called hydrinos. Right? This is exactly what Walter Russell would have said. Now, if you look at Walter Russell's work, he would say that matter is nothing more than light suspended. Right, motion in opposition. So their centripetal force of gravity is working against the centrifugal force of radiation, that one is slightly stronger than the other, which then causes matter to go through its periodicity, which is only to add electrons and protons as it develops through its life Mm -hmm. times, right? So you could think of matter as reincarnating. Now, you see my desk right here. If that desk were to burn over a million years or so, it's going to go into the earth and it's going to be what? Carbon, right? Yeah. Then it's gonna grow up as a tree or as a plant or maybe grass. As it grows up as grass, that carbon then just transmuted into what? Nitrogen. Mm -hmm. It added an electron, added a proton. So it's gone from six electrons, six protons, to seven electrons, seven protons. 
then it's going to end up going through photosynthesis because the sun's going to hit that plant or the grass that it became. And as the sun hits it, we have photosynthesis, and then it transmutes into oxygen. So now it's turning into eight electrons, eight protons. So maybe there's really, as Walter Russell really does say, one element that's just traversing through its evolution of periodicity. And that what we perceive as separation is really just an evolutionary process of different development. Forms. Going to different forms. So then the next octave up from carbon would be silicone, right? The next octave up from silicone would be germanium, right? And so what I've also done is I did a, I, I took wave separations, and those wave separations uh, indicate that there should be, based on the number of wave separations, 137 total elements. There's my number again. Versus the 118 that we presently have. That means that there's going to be, and it would basically say that there's, we're missing about three noble gases. Russell also th thought that we, we shouldn't have and the... many isotopes. Yeah. The isotopes. We shouldn't have the inert elements. gases in the periodic table, right? Uh, was it, was I that, mean, or was it the noble I, I gases? I think that's just a, the noble gases and inert gases are the same. They're, they're, they're basically the still point, right? You could think of this as a, at, at each wave where an element is going to... Um, basically take on more. So there's a sort of a male cycle and a female cycle, right? So it's sort of birth and death through its octave, right? And as you get to the peak of the wave, which is where carbon would be, hydrogen would also be the peak of a wave, but we just don't have the high amplitudes enough to basically show that there are isotope positions, right, for things like heavy water, deuterium, et cetera, that Walter Russell did actually discover. And, and, um, this concepts of maybe even hydrinos that would be before. You know, the first element on Walter Russell's periodic wave of elements was alphanon, right? Which would be the very first. And alphanon and omeganon is what he called them, yeah. right? The first and the last. They're basically the same thing. And, and so there should be, based on my own wave analysis, 137 total. And by the way, that's shared by Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman believed that there should be 137 elements based on the number of open potential spots for isotopes, right? And I'm not sure that he ever looked at it from a wave perspective, but uh, in our wave number theory that we basically wrote this paper very recently, and you can, you can find it and read it, um, is you know we, we posit that there should be 137 and that we're missing certain isotope positions as well as certain elements themselves that are largely hydrinos, as well as, uh, as, well as other elements that would be considered um, you know, the, uh, the noble gases that are missing. So this is very exciting research, but what, what it basically says is that matter is light suspended, caught between the centripetal force of gravity and the centrifugal force of radiation. And what we perceive as light has an opposite condition. So the opposite condition of light would be darkness or what we consider vacuum. And that that vacuum is actually what we would consider gravity slash time. So if you kind of, kind of think about this word, I told you about the Greek word, right? Aeon and noe. Yep. Well, if we turn the word time backwards, what is it? Emit. Light. Hmm. So what is the opposite of emission? Uh, absorption. Gra absorption, gravitation, yeah. So That's your two forces. Yes, and actually from an esoteric perspective, um, if you look at, kind of this concept of the Hindu belief system, right? Or the, the, 
that the self that we perceive of separate separated self is the sort of separate person persona from everybody else and the ego right actually maybe that's what we consider our conscious mind and then our subconscious is what's projected to our experience around us and the space that connects all of it might be the higher or super consciousness right the space so i couldn't help but play with the word just for fun time because another way of looking at the word time is it's me it's me it me yeah so emit is emission right of light radiation um, and the opposite of it would be gravity right and we cannot dissociate gravity from time itself we know that mass is directly related to time if you haven't seen the film interstellar go watch it because yeah. they land on this planet that's close to gargantua in this big black hole and this was all done uh and based on the work of uh, kip thorne the nobel laureate uh who discovered gravitational waves and basically they're on the surface of this planet that had water on it if you may remember um for only seven minutes but 23 years had transpired back on earth and back in the ship that's always been crazy to me it was because the mass there's a a, a mass scale time mass scale time gravity scale that that basically operates within special relativity so does does time stop in outer space it depends on what speed you're going if you're going at light speed it stops only at light speed for you yeah right for you because time is relative right. right but how come if we're flying around the planet like uh the iss so the faster you're traveling time actually does slow down yeah brian green the physicist did a great video on this um on youtube that you can catch anybody who wants to see that it's like 15 minutes long mm -hmm. brian green's a super smart dude absolutely cornell yep mm -hmm. and uh he shows um the way that space time works and the way that you know two objects traveling away from each other in space or whatever mm -hmm. how time can pass differently and he kind of uses this slicing the bread yeah, I've seen that. Have you seen that I've one? I've seen that, yes. That's a damn good video. Yeah, the little alien dude riding the bicycle. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I've seen that. And, you know, what it says is that all dimensions of time are happening simultaneously. Yep, I I exactly, which is fascinating. Which is fascinating. So when we look up in the sky, and if we don't believe that, just look up in the sky at night. What we're seeing up there is millions of years is old. Is millions of years old. Yeah. We're seeing if through time. If not billions of years old, right. depending on how far we can see. Yep. So, you know... I think there's our understanding, the next big evolution to human being from human doing, I think is going to be a much, much better understanding of exactly the true nature of time. You know, is it a torus? Is it something more uh, curvilinear mm -hmm. than linear? Yeah. Right? And, and I think this is going to be one of the big questions that are going to get answered as we start to understand and unpack what is gravity what is the opposite of radiation? So we still believe, and if you go back, I started off with this on Maxwell. Maxwell wrote all of his work in Quaternions, and his work included equations that related to gravity. Now today, the physics community is still totally separate on the issue of the quantum model, right, over this issue of gravity. And it's this whole question of strong force, weak force, gravity, you know, nuclear, versus you know sort of subatomic scale versus you know the macro scale of the universe and we can't reconcile the two between the standard model and the quantum physics model well, all the way back through max planck's era this was something that einstein tried to solve for the last several decades of his life and did not 
and and what I can say is that I think we're now very close to finding a unified physics model. You know, I was just playing this just a few days ago where you have H, right, which is the Planck constant. It is remarkably close to, and I'm sharing something with you guys here that I have not shared with anyone yet, but uh, it is remarkably close to the gravitational constant in numerical values, right? Now, physicists often get stuck because they're like, well, wait a minute, we can't use, I mean, our measurement systems are all arbitrary, are they not? And actually, they're not arbitrary because, look, I just told you. Well, yeah, we've learned about that on just on. In the Great Pyramid, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, come on, this is like very fundamental. And, and one of the reasons why I start to wonder if time doesn't loop on itself, and it's just an arc that's much farther than one lifetime can recognize and see, is because, you know, how in the heck did the pyramid end up on the longitude and the latitude that's exactly the what we've chosen today, right? It's like, come on, how, is the pyramid from the past or is it for the future? Right. I start to ask those kinds of questions, even though they may sound ridiculous, right? And, and so the point is that the big separation is this, you know, the Planck length, right, which we've now discovered actually relates to the square root of 10. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just that, said it uh-huh, like I knew that already. I didn't know that. The, the Planck length is related to something called fractal root that we've now just written a paper on. The fractal root of one is is separated by, you know, one ordinal. So you have 3.16227766, which is also the square root of 10. And that, that would be referred to as the greater fractal root multiplied by that same number divided by 10, which is 0.3162277766. And both numbers are irrational infinitely. Okay. So you multiply those two numbers by each other, and you end up with one, right? So now there's a different value for what we refer to normally as a square root of one is, is one or negative one, right? Well, actually, there's another way to look at it, which is this fractal root. And the fractal root tells us a lot because the fractal root of pi is 5.6, merger of the pentagon hexagon. Oh, wow. So 5.6 times 0.56 equals pi. Now, what this also tells us is that the Planck length relates to this square root or fractal root rather of one and the square root of 10. And if we take that value, the same one six on the 3.16227766, you take that value of the one six two two seven seven six six, and, and you, uh, you apply that with one six in front of that. And for reasons that I can explain just a little bit without having a nice way to present this on a piece of paper, what it basically says is that there is a relationship between that the true value of the Planck length should be 1.61622766. And when you use that, you actually get a true correct value for quantum gravity that matches experiment. And that is, that is a big leap forward that is happening right now. Uh, and another thing I think that we're going to find is that there is a direct relationship between the Planck constant, which is 6.62607, versus the gravitational constant, which is 6.674, right? And those two numbers are linked by a very simple other constant called the omega constant. The omega constant is something that is very lesser known, not well known at all. It's kind of been hidden in many ways. But we've also found that the Euler number is exactly derived through the omega constant, omega to 1 over omega power. So that gives us the perfect Euler number. These numbers are all relational to each other. I mentioned this yesterday, that all math constants 
are, are now being able to be seen as being the same numbers relational to each other through simple transformations, again, emanating from the number one and the numbers 137. It's like they're conjugated. It's like conjugated verbs. Yeah. That's exactly what they are. And, and I think this understanding is going to unify physics. But the, the way to unify physics is going to be through unified mathematics. Yeah. Because most people start with the physics and the cosmology and then try to justify their cosmologies and their perspective on the universe by going backwards, right? So start with the physics, then I'm going to go to the geometry, and then I'm going to try to justify the geometry with number theory. Whereas our team here kind of works starting from number theory. And then the number theory informs the geometry, which then informs the, the cosmometry and the cosmology of the physics model. And, and I think that's where the future of this is likely to go. It's very exciting stuff because, you know, the nice thing about math is the numbers don't lie. Yeah. I think that's the beautiful thing of it is it's so objective in math. And, and to watch the way that you guys break down these numbers in these super complex ways, it just doesn't really leave a lot of room for interpretation. It doesn't leave a lot of room for, um, you know, for, for coincidence. It's like, you know, you've got all these points all over the board that you're connecting, you're triangulating, you know, mm -hmm. and, and doing all this different stuff. And it's really profound. I know that we're getting close to time. Sure. So uh, one of the things I didn't want to um, leave out, two things. Uh, we'll just stick with one because I know we're short. Etymology, uh, etymology of number. Yes. You've got a course. Yes. That people can take to understand this stuff better and it will it will exercise their brain and it will make them like Dr. Manhattan from The Watchmen. Yes, but you don't Well, I don't know about Dr. Manhattan from The Watchmen, but maybe Dr. Strange. Okay. Well, but, that's, uh, <laughs> that that'll work for me. <laughs> but what I will say is this, you don't need to be an expert in mathematics to take this course. In fact, if you have a basic and rudimentary understanding of probably junior high level mathematics, one of the things that's really a travesty about mathematics today is that, you know, look, it's a world of scarcity still. And in a world of scarcity, everyone wants to make things seem very difficult. I remember when I lived in Japan, I used to ask, is it faster to go from Narita Airport in Tokyo to downtown Tokyo to my house by bus, by car, right, or train? And then I found out that all of them were like three hours. <laughs> it's like traveling in L.A. Exactly. So it's like there's no, it's like, but they like literally debate which one's better to go. But every one of them, and they say this in Japanese, like, ah, muzukashi. Muzukashi means very difficult, very difficult. I'm like, can you just tell me how long it's going to take? Very difficult, right? Because we don't know. It could be traffic, it could be this, blah, 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 blah. So it turns out that they liked it being so difficult. It's part of their culture. Yeah. And a lot of mathematicians like the fact that math is difficult. Yeah, I get that. Because then they can command more money for their time. I think it's science in general. Yes, I, I it's think so all the, bullshit. All, it I'm is, all the it, names, man. the words, the, the vernacular they use. We talk about this in our house all the time. Like it's just, it's so Absolutely. complex. And then you go read Walter Russell or you start to study hermeticism and it's so fucking simple. It, you know, you you know can, what? If it's not simple, it ain't right. Yeah, Einstein said if you can't explain it to a four-year-old, you don't understand it. Exactly. And um, most modern scientists can't explain anything to a four-year-old. So I love that, that you're making this type of, of knowledge. And it's not just knowledge. It's a way of, of seeing the world. It's a way of understanding the universe. It's so beautiful, making that accessible to, to everybody. You don't have to be a, an expert mathematician. I can assure you that JC and I are both going to take the etymology of number course and uh, let everybody know how, how we like it. Well, it's, it's there to teach us that, that we 
could have a different relationship with mathematics. Yeah. The different relationship that you and I and every one of us are able to have is to see it as the language it was always intended to be. It's a language. And like it. what the etymology of number course does and the, the advanced course after it called Language of Light is teaches you the mathematics of the universe and how to communicate through that medium. So how can people find the etymology of number course? It's on the Resonance Academy. So you can find it on Resonance Academy. and Or you can just Google Robert Grant etymology of number. Okay. And you'll it, find like introductory videos and everything on it. It's not terribly expensive or anything. It's a, it's a couple hundred dollars to take the course. Um, that's a, uh, you know, sort of there's, there's two parts of it. There's a four part series, uh, and then a six part series for the language of light course. I bring in some guests, et cetera, to help kind of solidify the teaching. You'll learn a lot about geometry. It's, it's about two hours, each of the courses. And, um, and there's a little bit of homework that you have to do, but, um, you don't have to be an expert in mathematics to take it. And actually the whole point of it is to help just generally open your mind to a different way of seeing the world around you. That is amazing. I'm looking forward to uh, checking that out. Thanks very much. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank Hope you for you your time, it. Robert. Thank um, you. We're going to go. Robert was so generous, and he brought in his uh, his notebooks and all of the, the crazy shit that you're always drawing and all the diagrams and stuff. So we're going to wrap this for now. Uh, but whenever we piece it to, this together, if you guys are watching this on YouTube, you're going to get a really cool video uh, where we're going to include some drawings and diagrams and uh, explanations of some of these really cool mathematical concepts. We understand it's hard to sort of uh, envision this stuff, sort of abstract, um, but we're going to give you guys some visual aids. And so um, hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed it. Robert, thanks so much, man. Thank you. I'll see you guys soon. Peace and love. Pleasure. Peace and love. <laughs>